Thank you, Nancy. Welcome to this week's Cosmic Creating Show. It's the 27th of July, 2019. My name is Jan Shaw. I'm known as the Success Alchemist. You can find me at successalchemist.net. And I have lots of information there on becoming a cosmic creator and how to get the right mindset and manifestation techniques to create your own reality. Take a look at that. And I'm also an intuitive WordPress developer. So go to the thewebalchemist.net if you're interested in that. And as usual, I have a very interesting guest on my show today. His name is Joshua Smoody. Schmoody, I think I've got that right. Have I, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> Hello. How are you, Jen? Hi. And, and he likes to be known as Josh, so we'll call him Josh from now on. Josh is the author of Reverse Speech in Theory and Practice, How to Use Your Unconscious Mind to Predict the Outcome of Future Events. And he's also founder of Lionheart Publishing. He graduated from American Intercontinental University in 2010 with his master's in education and received his reverse speech analyst certificate from the Reverse Speech Association in 2009. Using reverse speech theory, he has worked with a wide array of clients on a number of psychological and behavioral problems, employing metaphor restructuring, shifting negative behavioral patterns using internal rather than external stimuli. He also has multiple lectures on Udemy on topics ranging from analytical psychology to book distribution and currently works as an English teacher teaching English as a secondary language and he lives in Houston, Texas. So, Josh, such a fascinating topic, which is why I um, invited you on the show, because it really intrigued me, this whole concept of reverse speech. So can we start by you telling us how you came across this um, technique, if that's the right word for it? Yeah, sure, Jan. So um, back in 2007, I was, uh, well, a little bit before then, there was a lot of, um, this is in the 70s and 80s, uh, up to 2007. I, I grew up in a very fundamentalist household, a very fundamentalist Catholic household. So there was a lot of um, pastors, ministers that were playing records backwards and, and um, getting messages when they would play them backwards. Um, a really good example here in the States is Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. There was a lot of pastors that were playing this record backwards and um, getting audible messages in reverse. Um, what they claimed it was, was, was demons. Well, around 1987, David Oates, um, an Australian researcher, published the first book on the topic, which wasn't claiming that they were backmass messages or that they were from demons. Um, the name of the book was called Beyond Backward Masking. And what he, what David Oates discovered, which is quite fascinating is that um, these messages aren't just occurring in music. They occur in everyday communication. So if, if me and you were to record this conversation and play it backwards, we would get messages every 15 to 30 seconds, which actually complement what we're saying forward. So um, an example of this would be if I talked about my day and we played it backwards, you would get messages about things that happened during my day, about my thoughts at certain times of the day. This is a theory of complementarity. So whatever you talk about forwards, you're going to get reversals about. 
Um, so I stumbled upon this doing research from that perspective, from the fundamentalist perspective. And that's when I stumbled upon David Oates and reversespeech.com. And, you know, I'd never heard any other viewpoint besides the, the fundamentalist viewpoint that this was from the devil. So when I discovered David, I was like, wow, this is this is pretty incredible. So I went ahead and enrolled in the classes and, um, you know, we do homework assignments every six weeks. Well, I gave the guy a chance because it sounded so far fetched to me. I went ahead and paid for the first six weeks, gave him a chance. And after I did, um, it was like my third homework assignment. That was when I had my aha moment. And um, what I call aha moments are when you realize that there's definitely something there. It's um, beyond your own projection into gibberish or beyond your own imagination. Uh, and what that was, was I had lost my keys and I, I was recording a session on myself asking backtracking where I put the keys, where I had them last. And uh, I remember one of the reversals was the nail is looking at it. And I was like, what am I, the nail is looking at it. So I walk into a walk-in closet that I had at the time, and there was a little a window in the closet and a little windowsill. And sure enough, my keys were sitting on the windowsill, and the tip of the nail was pointed directly at my keys. And that was when I was like, whoa, you know, if I'm just hearing this stuff, if I'm just hearing this stuff, how is it telling me accurate information that I, I mean, I couldn't have known that. I lost the keys. So how, you know, how, how was I able to, to just project that into gibberish and, and know that the nail was looking at it. So that was really my first aha moment. And that was when I started really taking his theories seriously um, and, and getting deeper into it. Uh, the, the actual concept for the book came a little later. I don't know if you want me to get into that or if your listeners have any questions about reverse speech, but basically what, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, we, we no doubt will, and I definitely will. But yes, by all means, mention the book at this point. And if you want to just explain about that, that's absolutely fine. Yes. Yes. So basically, um, once I started using reverse speech more and more, um, doing session work on myself became more frequent for me. Because really what you're doing is you're tapping in to the same part of the mind that is responsible for the creation of dreams. Uh, so you're tapping into the unconscious. And um, David's theories are are heavily, uh, he heavily borrowed his theories from Jung, um, from Jung's theories on the unconscious and on levels of consciousness, uh, starting with your conscious self, going into the personal unconscious, which is like uh, memories, and then going deeper into the collective unconscious, which is access to information that you don't consciously know you have. Uh, so anyway, I was doing um, a session on myself in 2008 around January, and one of the reversals I got was the summer of shame, let's miss it. And I, I thought to myself, the summer of shame, it's a well-known fact in the reverse speech community that your reversals can tell you what's going to happen up to six months before it happens. This isn't just my experience. These are other analysts that I've never talked to that are you know, experiencing similar phenomenon. But anyway... You know, it just it concerned me, but I put it at the back of my mind. It's, you know, summer of shame. Well, whatever. I'm not going to worry about it. Sure enough, in 2008, uh, in May of 2008, I was I was driving to Corpus Christi for spring break, and I got caught up in this small town called Edna, which is is uh, the prosecutor's been the DA there for 28 years. They they're notorious for sentencing maximum sentences for nonviolent, minuscule drug crimes. I mean, they've been in the Austin Chronicle uh, about 
how corrupt the town is. I, I didn't know this at the time. Well, anyway, I got pulled over in this town and one thing led to another and it, it turned into this huge trial that I had, you know, it, it lasted for years. Well, anyway, it was a shameful summer because once that happened, like I started just losing everything due to this, this event, this legal event. And in America, a trial can take years. I mean, we don't have a quick justice system here. It takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of time. So before you know it, you know, you're not getting a trial for five years later if you're in a smaller town, five years after the incident. But anyway, after that happened to me, I thought to myself, you know, well, wait a minute. If it was telling me this was going to happen before it happened, um, what if I, I conducted a session in a controlled environment where I put forth a hypothesis and I tested myself and maybe four or five other people and see if they were all generating future tense reversals, which is a, which is a category of reversals. These are reversals that um, actually predict the outcome of a, of a future event or a behavioral outcome. So once that happened, what I did is I conducted a research study and, and I put forth a hypothesis and tested it. Because right now the academic community still looks at reverse speech as a pseudoscience. And that's all new sciences are looked at like that at first, unfortunately, um, until people get used to the idea, until enough people have used it and can ver verify the uh, authenticity of these theories. It's going to remain a pseudoscience until there's more research done. Well, anyway, so what I did is, is I wanted to raise the, um, the awareness of this theory in the academic community by taking the argument from are reversals there? Are you just, you know, making this up? Are they actually there? Or is it just a matter of opinion? I wanted to take it from that to how can you structure a conversation in such a way to get specific reversals? So um, how can I structure a conversation forwards where if I play it backwards, I will get a certain type of reversal? Uh, and so what I did is, is I put forth a hypothesis in that book. And that hypothesis is when discussing the outcome of future events, using the consetic sensory function. So talking about what you feel is more likely to generate future tense reversals or reversals that predict the future than using the visual or auditory sensory function. So by talking about what you see and what you hear. So what I did is I developed 14 questions, seven related to the consetic sensory function or feeling, and then the other seven related to the auditory and visual sensory functions, so hearing and seeing. And I asked these same 14 questions to myself and to three other subjects that were participating in the study. And uh, I compared the findings, reformulated the hypothesis, and that's really the overall thesis of the book. What I wanted to do is I wanted to create a uh, or design a research study that anybody else could replicate. I, I don't want the argument to be, do you believe what I'm saying? Like, um, you know, like I'm trying to start some new faith or something. I really wanted to, to raise, raise the level, raise the bar up to, okay, I'm going to test this myself and come to my own conclusion. So rather than you believing what I'm telling you, and I say this in the book too, conduct the study yourself. Do what I did, replicate it, and then come to your own conclusions. We all do it. Nobody does not have reversals. We all generate reversals. They come from the unconscious area of the mind, and they complement what we're saying, no matter who you are, what race, what religion, what creed. If you're a human being, you generate reversals. 
So that was really the, the concept for the book. And that was how I, I came about um, developing that hypothesis and, and conducting that research study, which is, which, you know, I, I um, the findings that I, I got from that study have um, opened up new doors in my life personally that I didn't think were, able, you know, I didn't think it was possible to open these types of doors. But um, other people, I have no doubt that other people can do the exact same thing. Um, they just have to follow exactly what I did in the research study and come to their own conclusions. But um, I do also recommend if, if you're going to be getting into reverse speech as a therapeutic tool to receive a professional certification. But if you're just a hobbyist and you just want to see, hear some examples, you can go to reversespeech.com and listen to examples. You can also find them on my Instagram, uh, which is at Joshua Schmoody. I have a reversal of the week that I put up there every week. So for hobbyists, if you want to kind of learn more about this, I would recommend you go to either reversespeech.com or you can go to my Instagram page at uh, Joshua Schmoody and, and listen to some examples. Uh, and if you really want to get into it as a, as a hobby, then I would recommend you sign up for um, reverse speech courses. Right now, David is the only one that I know of that's, that's offering them the way that he's offering them. But I'm going to start creating some for you, Demi that I plan to have released by the end of the year. So what I want to do is I'm working with the Reverse Speech Association. Uh, I want people to actually get certifications once they complete this course. So it'll be just like a live course. You'll have homework. You'll you know have to submit examples to the teacher. You'll get graded. And then upon completion of the course, you will receive an actual certification from the Reverse Speech Association. So soon I plan to have a Udemy course. But right now I think that um, – the only one who's offering live courses is David Oates for the time being. You can find more information and other analysts, maybe those living in your area, by just going to the Reverse Speech Association website, which I believe is reversespeechassociation.org, if I'm not mistaken. I'd have to look that up. But um, I would recommend people that are interested to, to kind of explore a little bit, um, look at David's website. Uh, because he's got literally thousands of different examples. He's been doing this for decades, uh, but also check out my Instagram and, um, you know, keep an open mind because just like you say, really Jan, a lot of people I think don't understand the, the fact that we are divine creative beings. We can create our own reality. We don't, the reality you're living in is the reality that you want to live in. And that might sound crazy to some people. Some people might say, well, I hate my, my reality right now. Well, you're the only one who can change it. You're, you're the one who created it. It was your decisions, whether inadvertently or, or directly, and it's your decisions that can change it. Nobody else. Um, and I think once people realize that divinity that is within them, um, there's nothing that can hold them back in life. There, there's, there's nothing that they can't do. Um, so that's one thing reverse speech has, has really taught me about myself is that we have all the answers to any problem that you can think of within ourselves. It, it's not outside of us. It's not in some religious organization. It's not in some great leader that's going to come and save the day. It's within us, all the answers to our life, um, to our purpose, to our destiny, all that lies within us. It's, it's not outside of us. Um, you know, that relationship with, with some sort of higher power, this is, this is what is within us. It's not outside of us. The things that are outside of us, which we know today is, you know, like religion and, and politics, these are just really reflections of what's within us, you know, sort of symbolic images uh, representing inner 
uh, inner drives, inner personality motives, inner inner development. So I think our outer reality is is a reflection of what's happening within us. Absolutely, and and it's so great to hear that because that's really the theme of the sh- of this show. You know that we create our own reality. Um, you were saying that you know learning this this process opened new doors for you. Can you give us some examples? Well, I um, David at the heart of David Oates' research, um, it goes deeper than simply playing speech backwards. So what David developed, and this is taught to second year practitioners. I'm a certified analyst. I'm not a practitioner, but I know how to do what practitioners do. Um, anyway, what David developed was a therapeutic technique that he calls metaphor restructuring. So let me just kind of fill you in here. Our reversals come from, according to David Oates' theories, come from three distinct areas of the psyche. So first level reversals come from the conscious area of the mind. These messages will speak in everyday language and they usually convey inner thoughts at the time that you're speaking. So, um, you know, a first level reversal would be something like I had a bad day or I can't find my shoes. Uh, It will speak in everyday languages. Second level reversals um, come from a deeper area of the mind, which David called the personal unconscious, as did Jung. And these reversals reveal repressed memories, um, things that were once conscious but have become unconscious through the passage of time. These reversals use what's called operational metaphors. These are verbs that describe the active outplaying of behavior. So a reversal from this area of the mind would be like, um, she sniffed me or I kissed her. Um, it's using verbs to actually describe the active outplaying of behavior. Third level reversals come from the deepest area of the mind, which is known as the collective unconscious, according to David Oates and to Jung. And this particular area of the mind actually generates reversals that use structural metaphors. These are nouns um, like uh, Jesus, Buddha, Satan, um, And it uses these metaphors to describe the actual root causes of behavior, as well as relate the state and condition of the soul. So reversals from the third level or from the collective unconscious will speak in a very symbolic language. So, for example, a reversal like this would be uh, my goddess is slain or my wolf is sick. Um, These are actually metaphors that represent behavior patterns. So if somebody was to get a reversal like my goddess is slain, the goddess is a common metaphor that we all use in reverse to um, to portray hope. Uh, it's a metaphor for hope. It's a symbol for hope. So if somebody's goddess is slain, then that means that they have lost hope in life. Um, another example would be the wolf. The wolf metaphor is a um, common metaphor that we all use for motivation. So if your wolf is sick and reverse, and that means forwards consciously, you've lost the motivation in life. You've lost the motivation to, to pursue your goals. So with metaphor restructuring, what you can do is through a, um, it's a, a form of hypnotherapy is what he uses, uh, an induction method. 
um, after that induction method, what you will do is, is you will take the metaphors that this person is running and you will shift them. Um, and once you make that change at an unconscious level, then consciously that person will experience those behavioral changes without even realizing or without even really trying or making an effort to change. It'll just happen. Um, and usually that happens about six to eight weeks after treatment. So what really fascinated me with David's work isn't so much the, the backwards messages, which, I mean, those are definitely fascinating. They always amaze me. But um, is the actual therapeutic technique that he's developed to actually shift these metaphors and change behavior. You know, with Jung, the whole point of his dream analysis was you are acting as a sort of um, observer of unconscious contents, right? It, you can't really necessarily change them. Right? You can only observe what the dream is telling you and try to figure out the message. Um, with reverse speech and with metaphor restructuring, you can actually directly act upon the unconscious and change certain behavioral patterns that otherwise you wouldn't have access to. Um, personality, and this is my belief through my own research, my own inner experiences, personality starts within and manifests outward. It doesn't start outward and you know go in. So any sort of attempt to change somebody's behavior from the outside is not going to be as effective as changing it from the inside. An example of this would be like conditioning. You know, if you were, um, you know, I studied behaviorism when I got my degree in education and conditioning. Josh, based, yes. Sorry, I'm I'm hearing quite a lot of background noise. Yeah, sorry about that. I wasn't expecting your call. That was I'm in a coffee shop right now. I'm gonna see if I can walk over somewhere more quiet. <laughs> okay, thank you. There you yes. go. Hopefully that's better. But um, okay. So yeah, basically that was what fascinated me with David's uh, theories is the fact that we can actually act directly upon the unconscious mind and create the changes that we want without the person even making an effort to change. It just happens rather than conditioning somebody from the outside in and constantly providing reinforcements to, you know, create that behavioral outcome. So, you know, there's a lot of um, stuff we don't understand with the development of the mind and the personality. And this kind of scratches that. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. I mean, I have a big issue with motivational people because that is, uh, that is coming from the outside and it, it doesn't last. And my theory is that it actually causes people to fail because they can't follow through with it. And then they start to judge themselves and, and feel even more inadequate because they haven't been able to do what this speaker says oh you know you can do it just do it and you know when I work with people I work very much on what's the underlying inner um, <coughs> source of whatever is going on right. um, and really resolving that so um, I've got a question from the chat room about asking for an example because um, how does it actually work in practice in terms of, uh, and you said that everybody does this, even though they may be unconscious of it. How, right. how do you start with a, a, a sentence, for example, right, right, and get to what the reverse speech of that is? Okay. So, um, and that's a great question. I'm glad that they brought that up. So basically reversals, 
we call them reversals. So let's just call these messages that we get backwards. Let's call them reversals. So reversals are not formed by the words that we use. They are formed by the emotions that we use when we say them. So if me and you, Jan, were to say the exact same thing forwards and play it backwards, we would get totally different messages depending on the emotion and the tonality that we used when we said them. So how I find reversals, and any sound editing software can do this. Audacity is great. It's a free software program. But I have Reverse Speech Pro, which is a – he also has an app, too. I want to mention that to you guys. He has a Reverse Speech app on Google Play and on the iPhones, uh, iTunes Store. So you can download that for free and, and kind of mess around with it. But using a sound editing software, any sound editing software, what you would do is you would record yourself with your cell phone finish the recording, upload it to your computer, you know, load it into your program, whatever sound program you're going to use. And then what I always do is I start at the very end of the track and move forward. So I start backwards and go forwards. But anyway, I'll go to the very end of the track and then start selecting 30 seconds to a minute clips and playing those backwards at 85% speed. And roughly every... 15 to 30 or 40 seconds, you're going to get reversals. You will get messages. They might be single word messages. They might be long sentence structure messages, which are six, seven, eight, nine words. Uh, it just depends on the emotion and the, the, um, the nature of the conversation. So if it's a conversation where both parties are really stimulated emotionally, and intellectually, and they're, they're making that known as they speak, they're going to generate more reversals than if it was a very monotone, uh, boring, you know, just reading from, a, uh, reading from a, a, an article or something, you know, and playing that backwards. If you're doing something like that, you won't generate as many as a free-flowing, relaxed conversation. So basically, that's all you would do. You would just record your conversation Upload it to whatever sound editing software you're going to use. Audacity is free. It's great. Once you upload it and open it on Audacity, start at the very end of the track, select the first 30 seconds, and play it backwards at 85% speed. Then document whatever messages you hear. Now, when you're doing this, though, it's important to follow the validity factors that David has outlined because a lot of people, it's a, a big problem with people new to the field too, is they'll project into the gibberish. So reversals will always have a melodious sound, whereas gibberish will have a very monotone sound when you play it backwards. So an example of this would be like um, monotone when you're playing it backwards, gibberish would be blah, blah, blah. When you get a reversal, you'll hear a blah, 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 blah. So it'll have a definite tempo and melodious tone that stands out from the surrounding gibberish. And as you do it more and more, you you'll, it's like riding a bike. It's just, it'll come to you naturally and you'll, you'll be able to spot just by the change and the, the tonality and the melodious tone, and the tempo where reversalism and where it's just gibberish. But David developed seven validity factors to follow when you're documenting these reversals. And you can, um, Rather than go into all seven, I can send them to you, Jan, if you want to post them. I'm also going to make a face or a, a Instagram post and just post them up there. But basically, these validity factors are 
one of them is is the syllable count correct? So this is an example. That's six syllables, right? Um, if the reversal is saying what you think it's saying, it should have the same amount of syllables as, as what it's supposed to say. Um, another one is, is there a clear and definite beat and tempo to the reversal? So like I was saying earlier, does it have a melodious tone? Is it or is it very monotone? There's other validity factors as well. Another one is, is, is the beginning and the endings of each word clear and you know, clearly formed and precise. Um, so you, you will go through this list of seven checkpoints, basically, with each reversal that you think you hear and mark off the checkpoints that it meets and make sure that if it meets at least five of those seven checkpoints, to me, that is what you would call a genuine reversal. It's a level four reversal. It's not as clear as level fives, which meet all seven, but it's pretty clear. Um, this is how David has organized it. So it, once you're doing this, it's important to follow those validity factors and um, whatever message you think you hear, if it meets those seven validity points, those seven validity factors, then document it. If it meets five of those seven, it's still worth documenting. If it meets less than four of those seven validity factors, then I typically do not document them. Some people do, I won't. But um, that's how I find reversals is I will use reverse speech pro, which is sound editing software. I'll record myself on my cell phone. I'll upload it, open it to um, open it in my sound program. And then starting at the very end of the track, highlight the first 30 seconds, play it backwards at 85% and document any messages that I think are there. Um, if they meet those validity factors, I will document them and put them in my transcript. If they don't, I'll just move on to the next reversal basically there's a saying that we have in the reverse speech community and that is if in doubt throw it out if you think you hear something but there's just you know it's not clearly formed or the syllable counts not correct or it doesn't really have a constant beat or tempo it's not distinct from the surrounding gibberish i don't document them some people will but i would recommend especially if you're just getting started not to document those types of messages because people can you know, harm themselves by thinking they're hearing something that really isn't there and then acting on it. Um, and it's a really common mistake for people that haven't had any training. It's best not to do any reversals on yourself. When you first start, find old speeches, like uh, maybe an old Churchill speech, and play that backwards and document those reversals. Don't do reversals on yourself or people close to you when you're first starting, because you don't have enough experience and you could think you hear something that's there. That's just a complete figment of your imagination. And now you've completely ruined your friendship or you've ruined your relationship over, you know, gibberish that you thought said something that didn't. So I always recommend if, if people are really interested in doing this, start with speeches, just start with really famous speeches where there's a lot of emotion that was used in the speech and uh, play it backwards. And I, I guarantee if you got a 10-minute speech, you're going to find at least three or four messages that are, are pretty clear. Um, and, you know, start from there. Start from there. Because once you learn the melodious tone and the, the constant beat and the tempo that these reversals always tend to exhibit, you will start recognizing these patterns when you play whatever you're playing backwards. So in human speech, you will definitely notice a distinct... 
from the surrounding gibberish. You, you'll know that there's something there and you'll go back and what is this? Listen to it a little closer, maybe turn the speed down a little bit uh, and then go over the validity factors and check the message with those factors. So that's what I would recommend. Download Audacity, which is a free uh, sound editing program, and you can start doing reversals today. Um, but if you're serious about it, I would recommend looking into Reverse Speech Pro, which David charges $100 for the program, which really is its not that much. The, the reason I like his program is because it has a transcript feature. So you can actually bookmark where a reversal is and develop a transcript with the forwards and the backwards and then dump it as an MP3. So you can dump it as an example. Let's say you find a reversal um, and it, it says something, then what you can do is you can actually cut that specific clip out and dump it as an MP3 file. So you can use it as an example for others. So if you're really looking into doing this seriously and developing transcripts and maybe using it even as a form of psychotherapy, then I would recommend you know getting Reverse Speech Pro and making that investment. But for now, for a hobbyist, either get the app the Reverse Speech Pro app, uh, or you can download Audacity and, and start as soon as you want. So is the, you know, I know you're recommending not doing it yourself to begin with until you've, um, you know, had some examples of using speeches and what have you. Is there um, any specific way you should structure what you're recording? Because you were saying, you know, you record it on your cell phone. And I know what you were saying before about using it, tapping into those different um, yes. auditory and kinesthetic yes. aspects. Do you yes. need to structure what you're saying in a particular way? Okay, so you don't have to, no. But if you want to generate reversals from a certain area of the mind. So for example, let's say you want third level reversals. You want reversals specifically from the collective unconscious. You want those deeper level reversals, right? What you want to do is you want to structure a conversation in such a way that you talk about what you feel. Um, I feel this is going to be a great day. Um, in my inner self, I'm getting this bad gut feeling, blah, 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 blah. This is why. You want to use the kinesthetic sensory function and speech. Doing that has some impact on the level of reversal that you obtain. If you're just trying to get um, conscious thoughts, if you want to understand what a person is thinking at the time that they're speaking, then you want to structure the conversation in such a way that they talk about what they see. So this looks good to me. Um, I see a, a beautiful place in my mind's eye. I see this is going to be a wonderful uh, job in the future. Uh, you want to talk about what you see, whether it's in your mind's eye, what you see actually in physical reality. You want to use the visual sensory function when you describe what you're describing. Um, now, if you want to get second level reversals or reversals from the personal unconscious, which uh, really tap into memories uh, and the active outplaying of um, behavior, then you would want to structure a conversation in such a way that you use the auditory sensory function. So you want to talk about what you hear, uh, and then that will generate predominantly level two reversals. Now, keep in mind, when you structure a conversation like this, it does have some impact on the level of reversals obtained, but the actual reversals themselves are not formed by the way that you structured the conversation. They're actually formed by the emotion and the tone you use when you speak. So keep that in mind. Some people get that a little confused. They think that 
you know, it's, it's contradictory. You're saying if you structure it this way, you'll get this type of reversal, but now you're saying it's, it's a tonality issue. The levels of reversals can be controlled to a certain degree depending on how you structure the conversation. The actual reversals themselves, um, what they're saying, that is formed by the tonality that you use when you speak. So does that mean you need to consciously put emotion into what you're saying? Um, so that's a good question. You don't have to consciously put emotion into what you're saying. But what I've noticed, and, and David talks about this as well as other analysts, um, recorded speeches, people that are scripted speeches, people that are reading from a teleprompter when they're giving the speech, uh, generate fewer reversals than people that are having a relaxed, free-flowing conversation. So if the conversation is very monotone and is very scripted, you will still get reversals, but you will not get as many than if you actually had a free-flowing, relaxed conversation. And it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be highly emotionally charged, but it has to mean that there's rapport that has developed and there's some sort of interest in the topic that's being discussed. Enough interest to keep you talking about it enthusiastically to a certain degree. So again, it's, it's in the analogy of the teleprompter, you're actually speaking with a focus on something outside of you rather than being involved from an internal um, perspective. Is that a fair? Um, right. Well, let's say, for example, for example, um, Obama's speeches. If I was to record one of his speeches and play it backwards, I would more than likely get fewer reversals because this is something that is scripted. It's something that he's not really using any emotion when he says it. He's just acting it. You know what I mean? He's already read this many times. He's just trying to sell it to you. You know what he's saying? Um, yeah. Th those types of conversations are not as um, – they're not going to generate as many reversals. You'll still generate reversals, but they're not going to generate as many. Whereas a relaxed, free-flowing conversation is going to generate the most reversals because it's not scripted. It's not something that you, um, you, know, you wrote down and, and now you're practicing it over and over again. It's something that's just on the fly. You turn on the recorder and you just start talking about it. You're talking about how you feel, what you see, what you hear. Using those sensory functions to describe whatever topic it is you're describing that you want information on. Right. So... Question for you. Um, you were talking earlier about that experience of, you know, the summer of shame. Let's miss it, I think you said. Mm -hmm. um, and also that we control our reality. So that example was kind of predicting something right. um, which you ended up experiencing. How right. can you use this? Not to know what's happening in the future, but to create what you want to happen in the future. Well, that really it depends largely on what it is that you want, of course. But everything that, that we want in life is, in my opinion, is a direct result of our own behavior and how we, we respond to certain stimulus in our environment. So if I want to accomplish a certain thing, kind of like what you're saying with motivation, if I'm trying to do something and I'm not motivated to do it, it's never going to happen, right? So it kind of boils down to my behavior and if I want it enough. And if I want it enough, I, I can make it happen. So if we're using reverse speech to make something happen. 
there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can use metaphor restructuring and be honest with yourself and say, man, I know I'm lazy in this respect and I want to change this. And I, I need to know how, what metaphors I need to change um, and then shift those metaphors. Or you can just record a conversation and ask yourself, talk to yourself, say, I see myself doing this in the future. I see myself being able to do this because I've done this, 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 and this to get there. I want to also ask myself, are there any problems I need to be aware of? I see this may be a problem. I hear this could be a problem. So you really want to go over your objectives on what it is that you want in life. And then you want to record a conversation and use those sensory functions to describe not only what it is that you want, but how you plan to get it. Then record that, play it backwards and you'll get reversals that actually complement what you're saying. So if there's something, a warning that you need to be aware of, let me go back over here. If there's a warning that you need to be aware of, or if there is a um, uh, some type of goal that you're trying to accomplish and you don't know how, then what you can do is record a conversation and specifically revolve it around that topic and use the sensory modalities that you need to use to get whatever levels of reversal you're trying to get. So for example, let's just say your goal in life was to know what, this one person was thinking while they're speaking, what's, what's on their mind, right? You could record this person. Now, of course, you're not supposed to record people if they don't know it. I mean, here, I think there's a law that they have to know you're recording if it's not a public place. There's a perception of privacy. But anyway, you would record this person and you would want them to talk about what they see. If they talk about what they see, you will get reversals that actually not only complement what they see, but also relay inner thoughts at the time that they're speaking. Now, if you're trying to get information, not just about the future, but how do you accomplish a certain goal, like advice, basically, from yourself, then what you would do is you would just turn on a recorder and talk to yourself, as crazy as this sounds, um, and you will get messages. <laughs> you remember what I was telling you. Everything you have, all the answers to your life, everything you need is within you. It's not outside of you. There's, there's nothing outside of you that you need. It's all within you. Anything you need in life is within you. Um, and when you, when you record yourself, what you really want to do, depending on whatever your goal is, is just talk about one, what the goal is and two, how you plan to achieve it. And then three, maybe some obstacles that you see that could prevent you from achieving that goal. Once you have those questions lined out and what you're going to ask yourself, it's really just as simple as turning on a recorder going over each question and talking to yourself. Look, I need to get this information from my unconscious mind. I see this job interview is going to go very well tomorrow. I feel very good about it. I don't feel good about the interviewer. Um, I see that this could be an obstacle related to the job interview. I see this may be a way to get around the obstacle. Just, just like that. And, and going through each point, asking yourself literally, what you need to be doing and you will get messages that will tell you what you're looking for basically. Now it might not tell you what you want to hear, <laughs> but it'll tell you, <laughs> you know, what you're looking for. One thing about reversals, um, they always tell the truth. A lot of people in life, there's a disconnect between their unconscious and their conscious people act some, some way on the outside, but they're probably feeling something totally opposite on the inside. Um, and a lot of people live like that. Well, even if you're trying to hide something forwards, your reversals will correct the lie. So if I lied to you forwards and, and told you I did something and I really didn't do it, and you were recording this session, then you would get reversals that contradict what I'm saying. 
So if I said, yeah, I went to the, uh, I went to the car lot yesterday and I, and I went ahead and leased that car and I really didn't go, I would get a reversal like I'm so full of shit or this is, you know, um, it's a lie. It'll actually correct what I'm saying. It may even tell you what I did instead of going to the car lot. So if I went to a strip bar instead of the car lot, I'd get a reversal like went to the titty club. Um, and as funny as that sounds, <laughs> as funny as that sounds, it's happened to me and, and many other people that I've done session work with consecutive. I mean, it's just consistently, excuse me. It, it happens all the time. And sometimes it's very embarrassing for people because you're getting to a deeper level you're really, you're hearing people's thoughts. You're hearing their, their deepest inner desires and concerns. And a lot of people get really iffy about that because it's a very personal, private space. But the reason that is, that is so good is because in, in therapy, especially in psychotherapy, it could take hours, days, maybe years to get to certain really deep issues with your patient. Because they might not trust you on that point yet. And so it could take endless amounts of sessions to get to the actual underlying problem, the behavioral problem, the root of this person's issues. Whereas with reverse speech, it could just take one or two 30-minute sessions talking about the problem, how they want to change it, what they've done to change it, what they feel they could do better, uh, and then doing a reversal analysis on the session. And uh, you can, you know, you cut past all the BS and you just get right to the nitty gritty of the issue. And a lot of times when people hear the truth, they don't, it makes them upset. We call this, um, it's a reversal reaction where they'll hear something, they know it's true, but because it's so true and because it's so personal, they will get mad at you for bringing it to their attention. It's your fault that you're bringing this out. So you have to be careful with that. It's like a denial of what is really going on. And I mean, people do have this disconnect don't they between what they're consciously wanting to think about themselves and that subconscious um truth if you like or the unconscious truth that is underlying everything right exactly exactly and and in society we're taught i think from an early age or conditioned through through education through religion to act a certain way to think a certain way to, you know, and if something is outside of those, those confines, then it is quote unquote not acceptable in society's terms. Well, no matter how much society says something is unacceptable, people are going to do what people are going to do regardless, you know, and um, what they will do is compensate for that through putting on the front, putting on the persona in society that, yeah, I'm an upstanding member of society. I'm doing everything society wants me to do, but really, on the inside, they're the complete opposite. So, I mean, Jung called this the persona. You know, he called this the, the mask of the actor. The face that we show to the world that we want others to perceive us as. Not who we really are, but what we want others to perceive us as. Who we think that we are from a conscious perspective. Mm, yes, and I'm actually doing a course on at the moment about the shadow side. And it, it actually incorporates quite a bit of the Jungian approach in it and how you know we bury those socially unacceptable supposedly socially unacceptable aspects to um, present what we think is in line with expectations of you know our society and the people around us exactly exactly and that's 
reverse speech cuts through all of that. You know what I'm saying? It, it'll get right to the heart of the issue regardless of the front that you're putting on to other people or regardless of the persona, the mask of the actor. But one thing Jung talks extensively about in his writings is finding a balance, a union of opposites. You know, Jung believed that one-sidedness breeds insanity. So when you're living this life that you have to be morally perfect and you can't commit any of these, these quote unquote sins and you have to just, you have to be this morally straight person because this is what society tells you is the right way to go. Right. Those types of people suffer. They become neurotic. They, they have the split in their personality because one part of them is trying to do what society wants, is trying to be that person that society says you should be. Whereas the other part of themselves, the deeper part, may not care for that particular approach, may not care for what society is telling them is, is the right way to go, may want to do something else. Um, and so this conflict will arise where the persona is what everybody wants to see, what society wants, but the inner self is disconnected. The inner self is um, is aloof from from the persona. There's a disconnect. You know, the the persona is just the act. The real person behind that mask is somebody totally different, and, and that that's what causes a neurosis. That's what causes a split in your personality. Not being able to find a balance, a union of opposites. Um, you know, a perfect example of this. Perfect example is. Um, I don't know if you know, Thomas Aquinas always said the truth is usually in between two extremes. So any one-sidedness is, is an extremity and is probably isn't true. So basically, to give you an example of this would be, let's just say somebody is not, they, they, they think they're gay, but society is telling them right now becoming, you know, being gay is acceptable. But when I was growing up, it wasn't. You know, um, it was it was considered a taboo. Well, this person to society is pretending they're straight, is pretending that, you know, they're pretending they're a regular heterosexual male or female. Um, but in their personal life, they're having relationships with, you know, members of the same sex. There's just nothing wrong with that. It's totally fine. But when they're living a life like that, they're actually there's a split that is developing in their personality. There's this one side of their personality that they show to their family and to the society. And then there's this other side of their personality that they probably only show behind closed doors to the people that are very intimate and close to them. So rather than finding a, a, a union, a balance of these opposites, they choose to go with one side or the other. You're either going to do it this way or you're not going to do it this way rather than finding that middle way where you know, I can do this. I guess homosexuality probably wasn't the best example to use. But what I'm trying to get at is there has to be a union between our light and our dark, between our shadow and between our, you know, our conscious selves. We have to integrate those aspects of our personality rather than repress them is really what I'm trying to get at. Because repression and one-sidedness, it will always rear its ugly head again probably from an unconscious perspective later in life. If you repress something, it doesn't go away. It doesn't, you know, it's just not suddenly not there. It just becomes unconscious. And it does eventually lead to a split in your, your development and your personality, what Jung called a, a neurosis. Right. It's like an, op, uh, an, an opposition, an inner conflict in it. Right. In it. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So, so I don't know if homosexuality um, was the best example for that, but 
you get what I'm saying. Oh, it's a, <laughs> I think it's a good example, actually, because as you said, I mean, even today when it's become more um, acceptable, I think people right. still have, you know, this issue with, um, you know, how's the family going to react and judgments right. and all of these things because right. it might be, you know, more um, presented as more acceptable in the media, but not necessarily uh, within your personal circle. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. So that's really, I think the basis of Jung's work, but it's also what reverse speech has taught me is to be honest with myself. Um, you know, don't care what society thinks or what other people think of you. Cause none of that really matters at the end of the day. It doesn't matter if your mother or your father or, if they're proud of you, what really matters is, are you proud of yourself? I mean, at the end of the day, that's what really matters. Are you comfortable with who you are, with yourself? Not not because society says you should or shouldn't be, but because you are comfortable in your own skin. And if you're not, then you really need to examine, do some self-analysis and examine what you are uncomfortable with, what is, what is causing these inner conflicts, and resolve them. Don't repress them. You know, we're taught... This is a perfect example. Growing up, especially in a fundamentalist household, you're taught never to have sex until you're married. This is a very unrealistic expectation. Can some people do it? Yes. Um, Is it natural? In my mind, no. And when you teach somebody, don't do this, when you say don't do this, don't eat this apple, don't do this, what are they going to do? They're going to do it because you're telling them not to do it. (laughs) I mean, this is just psychology 101. If you really want somebody not to do something, Cigarettes are a great way, a great example of this now. They're legal, but we have constant propaganda telling you how bad they are. You can have something. We can do this with drugs too, any drug. You can have it legal and regulated in a clinic where it's dispensed by doctors and nurses and then constantly have propaganda talking about the side effects, how horrible it is, what it does to your body. That way it's no longer the cool, hip, forbidden thing to do. You see what I'm saying? Because right now – as much as we hate to admit it, if somebody tells you not to do something, you're going to go do it. If I tell you don't have sex, you're going to say, especially at 15, uh, and your, your hormones are raging, you're going to say, well, why don't you want me to have sex? Now i got to go try and see what it's all about because you're telling me not to do it. <laughs> so it's that repression. It's that if I tell you not to do it and you repress it, it's going to be okay, and this is the right way to live. And that's it. If, and rather than repression, if you just taught, look, I'm not going to tell you to have sex or not to have sex, but these are some single mothers. These are some single fathers. I want you to meet them. I want you to see a day in their life. I want you to experience the side effects of what could happen if you don't use protection, if you decide to get into this and you get in over your head. I think that's much more effective than just telling them don't have sex <laughs> because then you're just living in candy land. You know? And um, unfortunately, most people would prefer to live like that than be honest with themselves and say, well, you know, my hormones are raging. Of course, I'm attracted to this person. Of course, I you know, would like to see where that goes. And, uh, you know, let me try and, and see and see what happens. Rather than that, people just choose to repress it altogether. Uh, and then it usually rears its ugly head later in life through, you know, perverted forms of whatever you're repressing. So, Okay. It's, this is so interesting. And I'd really like to talk in the second half about how this relates to my understanding of manifestation and uh, explore how that relates to the reverse speech uh, right. process. So okay. it's, uh, it's, it's really fascinating. Did your um, 
I know in the intro I talked about your master's degree in education and mm. that you took a very analytical approach to this in terms of, you know, the, the scientific um, method of hypothesis and so on. Did, right. did doing the master's, did that help with that kind of approach? Definitely. Um, the What college taught me, I think one of the main things that college taught me was to cite your sources. Um, when you're writing, if you're giving your opinion, that's great. But if it's not your opinion, if you're stating something as a fact, then you need to back up your sources and you need to cite them appropriately using whatever citation style is, is acceptable and whatever community you're trying to write for. So in the academic community here, it's APA citation formats. So I, I really learned about citing my sources and uh, I did most of my learning online. So it was a lot of writing. It was a lot of essays every week. You know, they just basically give you the same textbook you would get if you go to the school and say, we're just going to do a chapter a week. You're going to read this chapter. You're going to write an essay on it. And I want you to use three or four outside sources besides the book and get into what this chapter is really talking about. So having to do that for, you know, four or five years, my writing definitely improved. Um, and I think that was the main thing that I got from college. But also with that citation was to the, the scientific method, you know, um, observation, testing something empirically, uh, and then listing your findings. That was another thing that was taught in my um, later years, my graduate years. So I learned both of those things from college. Yeah, and it's it's a discipline in effect. It's it's right. a, a methodology, isn't it, right. for, um, you know, presenting the material in a, a way that can be validated. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And if you want to be taken seriously by the academic community, you have to. Um, if you're just spewing your opinion, that's great. It's your opinion. But if you actually want to be taken seriously in other circles, you need to back up what you're saying with sources and uh, cite those sources. Right. Absolutely. OK, well, we're about at the top of the hour, believe it or not, Josh. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, um we're going to take a quick break and okay. uh, come back in the second half when, as I say, I'd like to explore this in relation to the manifestation process okay. and principles. So I think that'll be a good discussion. Okay. So, uh, Nancy, back over to you. Uh, welcome back to the second half of the show. I'm, I'm getting a lot of background noise again, unfortunately. There we go. I just went ahead. I'm in the back. I'm just doing the interview in the bathroom. That's how we're going to have to do it. <laughs> so, anyway, I'm having a great conversation with Josh Schmoody, and we've been talking about the reverse speech analysis. And in the second half, as I said, I'd like to talk to you about how this relates to manifestation and how we do create our own reality. Um, one of the things that somebody uh, has commented on in, in the chat room is um, is really about how how you were saying about if you're not feeling comfortable about something. So, for example, I think it came up when you were saying, um, you know, I'm not happy with the interviewer. And um, so, you know, one of the the theories of manifestation is never focus on the negative but I think what you're saying is we have to acknowledge those feelings in order yes. to deal with them yes. and and that 
it's the thoughts that we have that create the feelings that we have yes. that create the outcomes that we yes. manifest. And that yes. also requires taking the necessary action right. in, in physical terms to right. create that outcome. Is that? Yes. And, you know, Jan, what I've noticed with a lot of people and this is something that, as I was saying before, that reverse speech has taught me. It's taught me to be real with myself, uh, first and foremost, to be real with myself. If I don't like something, I'm not going to tell myself it's okay. I'm, go I'm going to tell myself I don't like this. How can I change it? And I think a lot of people live their lives settling for less because they tell themselves, oh, it's okay, when deep down they know it's not okay. They, they're not happy. And until they admit that to themselves, and that can be very hard to do. It's definitely a hard thing to do. Um, until they can do that, they can't change it, at least from my perspective. You have to really acknowledge that you want to change something. You have to really acknowledge when something doesn't make you happy and why that is not making you happy. And then decide what you can do to change it. If you live your life, and thinking positive is great. I'm not knocking thinking positive you should always try and have a positive attitude towards anything but if you really don't like something don't try and be positive about it and put it in a rosy picture if you don't like something admit that you don't like it and then then you can focus on how you can change it and, and make a better future for yourself yeah and if you're um, again, it comes back to repressing or suppressing it doesn't it that right. you'll still have that You'll, you'll still be holding that energy of yes. emotion in your unconscious. And, you know, what I always, in, in the work that I do, you know, it's the unconscious is so powerful that it can override what you might consciously want to think or, you know, want That's the it. outcome to be. So you end up again with the same conflict that it's like, in in uh, magnetism, you know, the positive and the negative cancel right. each other out. So you end up not being able to achieve that unless you deal with those inner resistances that are right. overpowering your conscious intentions. Right. You know, it's funny you say that because, you know, Jung, what led to a lot of his later ideas was a vision that he had shortly before the First World War. And the vision was he saw the rivers of Europe overflowing with blood. And this really scared him. This is one of, I, I think he had a series of visions. But Jung referred to this as his confrontation with the unconscious. He understood that what he was being shown um, was from another source of intelligence, let's just put it that way, than his own conscious ego. That there was some part of him that sort of had an autonomous intelligence that it, 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 um, it did not act directly in accordance with his own ego, but would show him things that he didn't ask to see. Let's just put it like that. Um, and I'm sure there's probably a lot of people in the audience that can relate, you know, when they've had dreams that, um, you know, you probably didn't necessarily want to see those things in the dream, but you saw them anyway, because your unconscious mind is trying to tell you something. And sometimes it'll use a very extreme way to do that, to get it through your head consciously that, hey, listen to what I'm telling you. You need to be careful. Um, so Jung, when he had this confrontation with his unconscious, he became a recluse for a, a certain period of years. And that is when he, um, from my understanding, is when he started writing the Red Book and the Black Books. 
and this is really the flowering, the later flowering of his thought uh, with relation to dream analysis and uh, mandala symbols as uh, images of wholeness. So what you're saying with that whole confrontation aspect of this, this inner part of yourself, it's essential to your spiritual growth. And until you confront what you need to confront, you're going to remain at a state where you're not growing like you're supposed to be growing. So as much as it might, as much as you might not want to experience it when you're experiencing it, these experiences are happening for a, a very good reason to, to get you to change your outlook. Uh, and when I'm talking about the unconscious and dreams, because Jung understood that unlike Freud, he, he knew that dreams did have a retrospective element. They did have an element that dealt with the past issues that that person had. Um, but it also has a prospective element. That means it relates to the future and to your destiny and to individual purpose. So the unconscious contains both. And it tells you things. And I say it tells you things because it will tell you things that you might not even consciously be aware of through symbols, whether it's reverse speech or through dreams. And it is up to the conscious mind to integrate what the unconscious is saying. A perfect example of this. Socrates said on his trials in the, the Phaedo, he said, judges, all men who condemn me, he said, now I'm about to die. And in the hour of death, men are gifted with prophetic power. And I say this to you who are my murderers, that a punishment far heavier than what you've inflicted on me will be inflicted upon you. And where I'm going with that is, let's, let's fast forward to the real world now with Abraham Lincoln. He had a dream shortly before his death, two weeks before his death. He was in the White House, and this is in his own diaries. He was in the White House, walking through the White House. He heard these sobs and this crying. And finally, he, he walked into the East Room, and he saw a coffin with these soldiers stationed around it and this group of people that were crying. And he went up to one of the soldiers in the dream, and he said, who is dead in the White House? And the soldier said, the president. He was killed by an assassin. After that, he woke up, and two weeks later, he was shot and killed. So... His unconscious mind was giving him information that he did not consciously know he had. It was actually warning him, and that was actually a pretty literal example. Sometimes the unconscious mind, most times the unconscious will use symbols and metaphors to convey higher meaning. But in that example, that was pretty bold and pretty, hey, look, dude, you need to listen. You're about to get your head blown off. <laughs> you know, Take this seriously. I'm trying to warn you. And unfortunately... He just thought it was just a dream, and he got shot and killed two weeks later. So it's important to listen to our unconscious and what it's trying to say. So not um, giving you something that's set in stone. No, this is going to happen. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, fortune tellers that tell, tell people, oh, this is going to happen. But, mm -hmm. And then people get caught in this self-fulfilling prophecy, don't they? Because right. they they're expecting that and they manifest that outcome. Whereas this was a warning that he could have acted upon and perhaps have prevented that from happening. Yes. Oh, and you know, uh, I think it was Dmitry. I cannot pronounce his last name. He was the Russian scientist that discovered, or that was the first to, to make a periodic table that I believe arranged the, the molecules or the, the elements by their atomic weight. Um, and what led to that breakthrough, because he, he understood there was a pattern there, but he couldn't find the pattern. Well, one day he was going over his notes and he just dozed off and fell asleep. And he had a dream where all the element symbols fit together perfectly on a table. 
And when he woke up, he instantly wrote that down, and that became our modern periodic table. A lot of people don't realize how much dreams have actually led to scientific breakthroughs. People just think they're, it's just a reservoir of repressed emotions and, and a retrospective thing. But um, there's actually something that's very profound in our unconscious and that, that really deals not only with our own future, but also with what we're supposed to be doing in our life, what our destiny is. And it can lead to breakthroughs if you just stop fighting it and just kind of go with it and, and figure out what this message is and, and how you can consciously manifest it or integrate it into your, your physical world. I mean, Einstein talked about that, didn't he, about how the imagination is is more important, more powerful than the intellect. Yes. And yes. And these were the, you know, it's like the eureka moments, isn't it, of yes. being given information or a clue or something that actually co- creates the breakthrough. Right. Well, you know, the scientific method, Descartes, um, he um, he the the work that he made, the discourse on method. That actually came to him from three dreams that he had prior to writing that book. And uh, if you read the dreams, they're very interesting. You could just Google three dreams and then Descartes. Um, but he, uh, those three dreams basically gave him the ideas for that book. And um, those ideas later turned into the modern scientific method. So, you know, there's, there's so many breakthroughs that we have that people attribute to consciousness, but really a lot of them are, are attributed to the unconscious and to dreams and to imagination and to um, inner realities, not outer realities. Uh, it's just people don't really know this and they haven't taken the time to, to look into it. But if you actually do some research on just scientific discoveries that were created by dreams. The sound. Can you hear me now? Oh, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. So if, yeah. You just broke up for a few minutes. Um, but anyway, what I was saying is, if they just Google, you know, scientific discoveries, dreams, they just Google that, it'll come up with literally hundreds of pages. They just go through different scientists, very well-known scientists, very well-known philosophers that credited their discoveries from their dreams. So, um, you know, when we're talking about manifestation, I think, like what you're saying, it's very important to be open to what your unconscious is saying and be receptive to the message that it's trying to, oh, to tell you. you broken up again, Josh. Can you hear me now? Could you just repeat that? You broke up for, for yes. a few seconds. Yes. Uh, basically, what I was saying is that if you Google scientific discoveries and dreams, you will have literally hundreds of pages of just different thinkers, philosophers, scientists that credit their breakthrough discoveries with their dreams. Even Carl Jung, the the dream he had that led to his theory of the unconscious and the three levels of the unconscious actually came to him in a dream. Um, And in the dream, he was basically in this house, this modern house, and he went down into the basement and he he noticed it became more medieval and more like middle age. And then he went down even further and it became like more Neolithic and more caveman, uh, you know, more ancient pre prehistory history. Uh, And that, basically led to the idea that there's different levels of the psyche. Uh, you know, the modern house represented consciousness. The, the middle floor, which is the Middle Ages, was the personal unconscious. And the Neolithic, up on your end, he is coming through fine. Okay, cool. And the Neolithic, um, Neolithic aspect is the collective unconscious or something that is deep, deep into our history. So this is what led to Jung's development of his his later ideas on the unconscious. It was from his own dreams. 
That's really interesting because, you know, I um, when I've been talking about um, manifestation, mm-hmm. I've given examples of how I have obviously manifested something that I hadn't consciously intended. And, you know, to me, it's like, well, the, that higher self, that um, higher consciousness knows what you're here to do and will mm-hmm. kind of give the direction. It's almost like the unconscious is manifesting what you need to to occur at that particular time, even yes. if you're not consciously aware of it. I mean, that's how I met Nancy. Um, you know, <laughs> and ended up on right? her radio station. Yeah, absolutely. And exactly. So people tend to focus very much on the conscious intentions of manifestation, but not so much on what happens through your own, the power of your unconscious in right. manifesting. I mean, well, I talked know. about how the the unconscious can compose a conscious manifestation because there's that inner resistance, but it can also create exactly what you need at exactly the right time um, without you being conscious of it. Right. Well, and you know, it's interesting you bring that up, Jan, because the whole heart of Jung's psychology um, is to uncover the image of the self, as Jung called it. Jung believed that within each of us, there is an archetype or an image. You still there? Yeah, Hello? I'm here. Okay, yes, there I'm we go. I just, there was a text message that came up. Okay, yeah. so anyway, Jung understood that within everyone's unconscious, there was what he called an image of the self. And what this image of the self represented was this person's entire destiny in a symbolic, metaphoric form. Typically, when this image appears in a dream sequence, it occupies the center of the mandala. Uh, and the mandala, for people that don't know, is basically a microcosm of the macrocosmic universe. So it's a, it's a two-dimensional diagram that represents the entire universe, right? It represents everything. So Jung saw in his patients, um, through his own empirical observations, that as his patients would keep track of their dreams and actually try to consciously integrate the messages that these dreams were conveying, uh, then the dreams that they would have would go deeper and deeper and deeper until finally it started producing mandala symbols. It started producing the square with the circle occupying the center. The square being, you know, it could be a courtyard. It could be a pulpit. It, it can take on various different forms, but ultimately it's a square. And the center, the circle, can take on many different forms. It could be a geometric circle. It could be a necklace. Um, you know, it, it could be many different circular things that represent that person's higher destiny. So Jung understood that within all of us, we carry this image, and it is the goal of his psychotherapy, at least, to uncover this image of the self, to have the patient um, have these, these individuation dreams, these great dreams, what he called them. So uh, that was really what got me with Jung's later ideas. And he, he talks about it extensively in psychology and alchemy. But um, that was the flowering of his thought. Jung understood that dreams, if taken in a single instance, are very hard to interpret. But if you actually write down an entire series of dreams, 40, 50, some of his patients, he had 800 dreams, consecutive you know, dreams in the series. The more dreams you have, the better and easier it is um, 
not better, but the easier it is for you to interpret the meaning because they all circumambulate around a center of meaning, a nucleus of meaning. And until that meaning is realized, until that meaning is realized consciously and accepted and confronted and integrated, then that person will remain at a certain level of development. Once they start integrating this nucleus of meaning and they start uncovering it, then the dreams will get deeper and deeper and deeper until finally they start producing mandala symbols and individuation dreams or great dreams, which are dreams that we have that we never forget. They make such an impact on us that we remember them for the rest of our life. I've had a few of those in my life, but Jung believed that naturally in our lives, we have a series of great dreams. And these great dreams are dreams that reveal our destiny and they make an impact to where we never forget them. The first great dream most have is in their childhood before they hit puberty. Uh, The next great dream is going to be right around adolescence and puberty. The next great dream after that is going to be in midlife. And then finally, shortly before death. So we have about four or five of these great dreams naturally throughout our life. Under Jungian psychotherapy, this process is sped up. This natural lifelong process is sped up and condensed into 10 months or a year. So rather than experiencing this over an entire lifetime, you begin to experience the meaning of these dreams and what your destiny really is, theoretically speaking, within 10 months to a year or however long your, your psychotherapy session is, is going for. But um, So this is what Jung understood and what he realized is that with dream analysis and in Jungian's form of therapy that you can speed up this natural lifelong process and, and make it happen, if you want to put it that way, uh, or realize it, realize your destiny, your purpose, uh, sooner. You can, um, you can integrate these unconscious contents sooner than you would uh, without this form of psychotherapy. Now, were all his patients like this? No, they weren't. But some of the, the patients that had been his patients for a very long time, and he had a long you know, 800, 900 dreams from these patients, these are the patients that he really used to develop his later ideas because he had so many dreams. And, and he understood that these dreams, once the patient recognized the meaning of the dream, they would get deeper and deeper and deeper. So the dreams may start in a courtyard or you know, in your house, but then as you get deeper and deeper, they go into the Middle Ages. And then all of a sudden you're going to this mythological realm. Now you're having these dreams of elementals and water, you know, nymphs. And, uh, you know, so it, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. The, the more you uncover in terms of the nucleus and the meaning that the dreams are trying to convey. So Jung understood that and he tried to incorporate that in his, um, in his psychotherapeutic uh, methods. I know every, you know, when I go to bed at night, I'm always looking forward to the, to the next dream because I dream every night. And, but one of the challenges that many people have, and I'm the same, is actually being able to remember the dream. And it seems the harder I try to remember it, the more it dissipates. Yes. Is there a way of developing a, a skill at being able to remember your dream much more easily? Well, what I've noticed um, with myself and in Jung's writings is uh, it was essential that the patient wrote down their dreams. But what Jung would always encourage is that keep a notebook by you when you sleep. And when you wake up, the moment you wake up, just write down whatever comes to your mind, whatever images that you can remember from the dream. 
And doing this, at first, you might only recall bits and pieces. But as you train your conscious mind to pay attention to this stuff, you will start noticing more and more details of the dream. They will become more and more vivid. I mean, as you know, what we focus on, what we put our attention on, that's what we see in here. If we're not focused on something, our brain is designed to filter out everything else that we're not focusing on. You know, so if you're focused on something, you can understand it and you can, you know, get deeper into that process. But if you're not focused on it and you're not devoting some of your conscious attention to it, then it, it will just take a backseat in your mind because your brain is designed to filter out 99% of the things that you don't pay attention to and just focus on the 1% of the things that you are paying attention to. So what I do is I write down whatever images come to my mind when I wake up, I'll write them down. And um, after you do this for three, six months and you kind of make it a ritual, you will notice that you're able to remember more from your dreams. And really what I'm working on now with metaphor restructuring, and this is going to be my third book. My second book, which is going to be coming out next year, is dealing with reverse speech and, and Jung's um, psychotherapy. But the third book is of gods and men, metaphor restructuring and the bestowment of the boon. So what I'm trying to do is rather than just changing behavior with these changing these metaphors, I'm trying to actually um, induce certain capabilities that are unconscious. So for example, I, I believe personally we're all clairvoyant. I think that we can all see into the spiritual world. But through the passage of time and to, through us not using these abilities and relying on machines and science to do things for us rather than our unconscious mind to give us the information, um, what happens is that these abilities slowly become more and more unconscious until they don't even really manifest themselves that much in people's lives. And I think that there's a way to unlock these abilities that we have, but that we're unconscious of. So this kind of gets into parapsychology, you know, um, second sight, ESP, uh, clairvoyance. I think that we all have tremendous capabilities that we don't even know we have. You know, we, we only use 10% of our brains. The rest is just unconscious. And the unconscious is far more powerful than the conscious mind. It, um, it, it has far more of an impact on us and our behavior than I think we would consciously like to admit. So um, I think that there's a way, whether it's dreams or clairvoyance or second sight, I think there is a way to manifest these abilities in people to, to create the changes at an unconscious level that you need to create to consciously manifest these abilities. Um, whether it's increasing your dreams or having dreams that peer into the spiritual world, uh, you know, second side ESP, just stuff like that. So that's really what I'm getting at with my third book is, is I want to determine an approach that um, people can use to make these changes within themselves and unlock certain abilities that they don't even realize that they have. All right. You mentioned um, by recording the dreams the um, the mandala is created. How does that work exactly? And how how would you interpret that mandala as a result? Right. So what will happen? And this is uh, in psychology and alchemy. What Jung did is he he took one of his patients, and uh, the the main thesis of the work is going over his patient's dreams, starting with the beginning of the dream series. Um, and then giving interpretations, uh, what the patient felt, what he thought, using the amplification method to find this meaning 
and then go on to the next dream. Well, the dreams started with, uh, I remember one of the original dreams was he, this, this patient was in a courtyard. It was in a square courtyard. And in the center of this courtyard was this group of children that were walking around in a circle. And there was an old witch in the middle of the circle. This is a mandala. He's in a courtyard, which is square. The children are the circle that are circling around the center. And the image of the self is the witch, is the old woman. Uh, and as crazy as that sounds, this is this is this guy's dream. Well, anyway, after Jung and the patient determined what these symbols meant, and it was a, a determination that the patient felt comfortable with, that the patient recognized as this is a good interpretation that feels right to me. Uh, once they did that, then the dreams got deeper and deeper and deeper. And what happened eventually is a dream that really made an impact on the patient occurred where he had a dream of the world clock. And um, it was a mandala, but it was a dream that stuck with him profoundly. And so what Jung was doing is starting with the first dream, he would use the amplification method and tie in whatever images that were in that dream, he would tie them into myth. So, for example, um, if you dreamed of a um, if you dreamed of a minotaur, right, uh, and you saw this mythological creature, what Jung would do is he would take that image and tie it in to all the the myths that deal with minotaurs and in what this symbol represented in those myths. This is called the amplification method, um, and using this method, you could determine the meaning of the symbol itself by understanding its context in certain myths, how the symbol was used in the myth. Um, an example with reverse speech is, is this. There so is, a myth is of, this similar to kind of Jung's archetype? Yes, yes, correct. It's, Jung understood that the unconscious spoke in, in symbols and in metaphors, and it, it, sometimes it could be literal, but most of the time it was figurative and symbolic. So what Jung would do is he would take the symbols that these patients were experiencing and he would tie them into myths, legends, fairy tales that use that symbol. Um, an example is the she-wolf. You know, in metaphor restructuring with reverse speech, the she-wolf is a common metaphor in reverse. It represents manifestation. So um, it's a metaphor you would want to use if you're trying to manifest something. Well, the she-wolf, when you're, you're using this in a meta walk, whenever you exit the meta walk, you have to have the she-wolf in a cave before you close. And David didn't understand why this had to happen. Like if the she-wolf wasn't in the cave, it didn't work. If you put the she-wolf in the cave, it worked. Well, if you go back into ancient myths um, and some of the ancient Roman legends, the she-wolf slept in a cave. Um, it was a green cave, actually, according to legend. So understanding that, without him consciously knowing this, he never read that legend in his life. He, he never even knew about that myth. But had he known about it, he could have had some context into the she-wolf and how to use that metaphor appropriately by understanding the myths and the context that these metaphors were used within the myths. Because this is the language that our unconscious mind uses. Think about it like a computer program. Computers use binary code, ones and zeros, right? That's the basic, that's how it all started, which is binary code. Our unconscious mind operates very similarly, like a computer. But instead of binary code, it uses myths. It uses symbols and metaphors from myths and legends and fairy tales. These are very much a part of us. They're very much a part of our inner makeup and our personality, both conscious and unconscious. So understanding the language of myth and the meaning of the symbols as used within the myths, the context in which they're used, 
will give you a good understanding of the message the unconscious is trying to convey when it uses those particular symbols. Hmm, interesting. And, um, you know, we've been talking about getting the Jungian approach in terms of discovering your purpose. Um, And back to the reverse speech analysis, can you use that same process to perhaps um, accelerate the understanding of your purpose? Yes, that's the, that's the basis of my next book. Um, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to speed up the, naturally, the natural dialectical process that happens between our conscious and unconscious minds. Um, and, and what that process is, is a process of uncovering who you actually are. You know, when we're children, you're always asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? What do you want to be? And you're, you're thinking about it. But as you become an adult, it goes from what do you want to do to how am I going to do it? How can I make this a reality so it's, it's no longer just a dream, right? Um, and this process occurs naturally with people over time. It's something that each individual has to figure out on their own. Well, with Jungian therapy and what I believe with reverse speech therapy is that we can, by analyzing dreams and conducting reversal analysis on people's dreams, one, it gives us a, um, another way to understand the dream's meaning besides using the amplification method. But two, I think it will help us understand the meaning uh, much quicker with much less dreams than having to have an entire series of dreams. So, for example, I think we could get at the nucleus of a dream's meaning in you know, 10 or 15 dreams using reversal analysis for each dream and, and going over the symbols and what they mean than writing down 800 series and just simply using the amplification method to understand the the nucleus of meaning that the dreams are trying to convey. So what I'm really doing with that second book is is using reverse speech theory to speed up that natural process and to get the unconscious mind to begin producing these mandala symbols or these images of the self um, without as much... um, legwork i guess as it took young because a lot of times these these um these dreams the nucleus of meaning wouldn't be uncovered until you know five six seven hundred dreams later and even then whatever the meaning of the dream is ultimately is something that you have to feel comfortable with so if i don't think an interpretation is correct you're going to feel you don't think it's correct whether you consciously realize it or not right um, but if somebody interprets it correctly, you will get this sort of feeling that, man, that makes a lot of sense. And that really sits, it sits right with me. I feel that that is the right meaning. So ultimately, the meaning of these dreams is largely on the patient themselves. Because whatever interpretation the, the doctor gives you isn't going to mean as much if you don't, if you don't believe it yourself. If you just think what, you know, well, I don't really like that interpretation. It doesn't really convey what I'm, you know, what I really feel it means, then you're not going to get any deeper. But if the interpretation is spot on and you begin to integrate what the dream is telling you, then the dreams will get deeper and the mandala symbols will eventually start arising during the course of treatment. At least this is according to Jung and, and his theories. So I think that we could use reverse speech to speed up that process even more. And um, rather than simply using the amplification method, actually record the patient talking about the dreams, what they think the dreams mean, and using those reversals to understand that deeper meaning. Mm. 
Okay. So I just want to go back to what you were saying earlier in the first half of the show about these three levels mm -hmm. of um, connecting with the unconscious. So let me say what I think you said, and you can tell me whether I'm right or not, <laughs> and then I have okay. a question. So the first level, which is where you're using the, the visual um, language. Yes. Is when you're wanting, when you're working with other people and other people's unconscious. Is and yours. Right? <clears throat> okay. And your own. But, yeah, and your own. But in the, you say the second level is where you use the auditory. That is your, your individual unconscious. So. <laughs> it's whoever, it's whoever's talking. So in my book, um, River Speech and Theory and Practice, I, I test three subjects, and then the last experiment is on myself alone. So you can record a conversation simply talking to yourself and, and getting these answers and using those sensory functions. Or you can record a conversation with another person and have them use those sensory functions when they're describing what they feel, see, or hear, and you will get those level reversals on that person as they're using those sensory functions in speech. So it works both ways. You still there? Sorry, I was on mute. <laughs> I get I got so involved in the conversation I forgot to unmute myself. So I'm not clear on the distinction between the first the you know, the I see level, the first level, and the I hear level. Right. So let me explain. So in in my book, here's a perfect example. In my book I have fourteen questions. Um, you know, what do you see this horse? doing in the race? Do you see this horse winning the race? Do you see this horse losing the race? Um, what do you feel about this horse winning or losing the race? What have you heard about this horse? How do you think that is going to impact its performance in the race? So structuring those conversations in that way, what you would want to do, for example, let's say I'm talking to you, you're the patient, I would ask you, Jan, what do you see in the future with horse number four? What do you see? Do you see it placing in the race do you see it winning and then you would respond using those sensory modalities and you would say well i see horse number four being a great horse i see this horse winning in my mind's eye i see this horse crossing the finish line so that's really how that would work i would ask you a question using that sensory function and i would ask you to explain your answer using that sensory function so what do you see about this horse? Jan, you would say, I see this horse, blah, 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 blah. And that's how you would use those functions in speech to get certain types of reversals. Okay. And similarly with the I hear. Right. What same with hear? I hear, same with I feel. Exactly. So I would ask you a question. Hey, Jan, what have you heard about this horse? And you would say, um, you know, I've heard this, this, and this. I hear it's going to be a great horse in the race. So that's, that's how we would use those sensory functions in speech. I would tell you beforehand, I'm going to ask you these questions, and when you answer these questions, I want you to use the same sensory function. So if I talk about what you see, I want you to explain what you're explaining with that sensory function. I want you to say what you see. What do you see? What do you see in your mind's eye? Why do you see this? Um, you know, and just go on from there. So 
does do those two different um, ways of expressing the I see and the I hear and the third level I feel, does do they take you to different levels of the unconscious? Yes, yes. Um, David's theories are based largely on Jung's theories as far as the levels of consciousness. So like I was explaining in the first hour, the first level of consciousness is the conscious thoughts. It's our conscious thoughts, our day-to-day thoughts, right? The, the deeper level or the second level is our memories. It's things that were once conscious, but through the passage of time have become unconscious. They have receded into what Jung and what David call the personal unconscious. And third level reversals, which is the deepest part of the psyche, come from the collective unconscious. And these reversals actually deal with things that you don't consciously know. They can give you information that you are not consciously aware you have. So information outside of conscious experience. They can also relay the state and condition of the human soul. And what David means by that is that they can relay inner negative behavioral patterns, structural patterns. Uh, on what is leading to this person's um, problems, personality or behavioral problems in life. So, for example, a third level reversal would be something like uh, my goddess is slain. That reversal, because it's using the goddess metaphor, it's not speaking in everyday language. It's actually speaking in, in deep dream language. Is coming from the collective unconscious theoretically. And what it's dealing with is actually the state and condition of that person's soul. That person has lost hope. Their goddess is slain, which means deep down, regardless of whatever front they're putting on, regardless of the persona, the mask that they show the world, deep down, they have lost hope. Something has caused them to lose hope. So that is kind of the benefit of the different levels. If you just really want to get into somebody's own conscious thoughts, then level one is is the best level to go with. But if you're trying to go deeper, uh, you want to reveal maybe repressed memories, you want to go to level two. And if you want to go even deeper than that and get at the root and causes of this person's behavior, the state and condition of their own soul, or access information that is outside of your own conscious experience, then you want to structure that conversation to get third level reversals or those that come from the collective unconscious. So that's kind of the practical way to think about that and use it. Okay. And you were talking right at the beginning about this, uh, the divinity, you know, the spiritual side. Is that the equivalent of the tapping into the collective unconscious or is it a different is it different? No, I, I think that is. I, I think that is the equivalent of, of tapping into the collective because you now have access to information you don't consciously know. There's no way you could consciously know these things and, and uh, you're getting this information. I can tell you from my own experience, I've had um, dreams that were very mystical, uh, which I keep to myself. But my next book, I'm going to actually have some artistic recreations of those dreams because I think it's important. Um, before I, I read Jung's work, I had already had some of the inner experiences that he was talking about. I didn't realize that they were mandalas until I read psychology and alchemy. And then they took on a whole different meaning. I was like, whoa. Uh, But starting from when I was a young child um, into my adolescence and then into my middle life, my mid twenties, I've had dreams that, um, you know, I didn't, it was giving me information and I was seeing things that I couldn't possibly know. And I couldn't possibly have consciously, um, you know, and this ranges from things about my own future to actual, 
I don't know what other word to use in beings. Um, <laughs> I, I am still divided within myself because some of the dreams I've had, I've, I've seen, I mean, I think they're independent consciousness. They're, it's another, it's a different being, but other people think this is just different aspects of your personality. But as you go deeper into the unconscious, seeing into the spiritual world actually um, is something that a lot of people will begin having experiences with. Um, they, they, like Jung, they will see things that probably they don't want to see. Um, and if they don't know how to consciously deal with it, it can cause some problems in their life. But um, yeah, I mean, it's from my own experiences, I've seen into, I guess you could, I don't know what to say. I mean, other realms or, or whatever, but I've seen beings and, and these beings seem to have a consciousness independent of my own. Um, let's just put it like that. So I think that at the deepest part of our psyche lies this capability within our collective unconscious to see into these realms that normally we don't see. I mean, as you know, science, we, we only hear a certain frequency. We can only see a certain range of colors. Um, and I think our unconscious can hear and see much more than what our consciousness can hear and see if that makes any sense. Mm, completely. In fact, my, my guest last week, who um, is a psychic and a medium, was talking about, um, you know, connecting with our spirit guides and so on. Yes. So as, as higher dimensional beings. And yes. uh, so what you're saying is by by using this practice of recording dreams and uh tapping more into that unconscious will help us develop more abilities into seeing things in the spiritual world through practice and developing the skill in effect. Right. Exactly. We all have it. I don't think there's any one of us that does not have this capability. You know, Edgar Casey is a famous psychic here. He made the statement, he made a couple of statements, but one of the statements he made uh, before his death, he said, there's not a single person that cannot do what I have done. There's nobody that cannot do it. But you have to be willing to sacrifice the necessary things to obtain it. And what he's really talking about is a sort of one eye closes, another eye opens. A sort of closing yourself off to being wrapped up in the physical, in the moment, and actually going deeper and opening, uh, I guess you could call it like your third eye. Opening that inner eye and going within yourself. And it's then that you can gain access to some of these abilities. I think with Edgar Casey, I don't know if you know who Edgar Casey was. Do, do you know who Edgar Casey was? Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. He, he, he was, um, he did a lot of work related to the Akashic records, if I remember yes. right. Yes. Exactly. He claimed that the information he was getting was from the Akashic records. And what he would do is he would go into a semi-trance state resembling sleep and uh, people would ask him a question and he would respond usually correctly uh, about whatever this question was. And he did not have this ability um, before he, he had some type of, I believe it was a throat infection or something, and he went to a hypnotherapist, and um, he, he did a session with him, and it, I, I believe it cleared up his throat issue, but he also found he had this sort of extra ability now where he could just go into this semi-hypnotic state and give answers to questions. So he inadvertently he unlocked something within his unconscious mind that I think we all have, but he just didn't realize that he did it. 
Yeah, like an activation. I know I've I've interviewed right. people who who have had near death experiences, yes. and you know they've come back from that experience completely transformed in terms of their um, psychic abilities and their abilities to connect with the spiritual world. Yes. Um, Mm. Yes. Interesting. My though. dreams, seeing some of these <laughs> beings in my dreams, I've I've gotten abilities that I mean, one of the first abilities that really started coming to the forefront um, about five years ago was clear sight. I'm just I'm able to see things not as I want to see them, but as they actually are, and this includes people. And this has kind of got me to a point where I've become more reclusive, I guess, because I see their inner self, not the front that they're putting up, and a lot of people. Don't have your best interests at heart. I, and I hate to say that, you know, um, there's good people, definitely. But the majority of people that I run into in day-to-day life uh, don't usually have your best interests at heart. Usually they're trying to get ahead and they'll get ahead at anybody's expense. And that includes yours, you know. Um, so I, unfortunately, that's the state of the world as I see it right now. Um, and that's why I've become more reclusive because I, I just don't. It's hard to have these conversations with people, and, and how can I bring some of these things up to somebody? I mean, it usually will start freaking them out if I know something about them that they've never told me. Um, but it's definitely an ability that has become more and more prominent after I've had some of these inner experiences. And I didn't ask for these inner experiences. They just happen. Um, there's spontaneous products of the unconscious. Jung called this the divine numinosum. Uh, but when they happen you are changed whether you want to change or not. Let's just put it that way. When somebody comes back from a near-death experience and they've seen into the spiritual world, they're going to change whether they want to or not because everybody around them is focused on American Idol and in entertainment, and they're thinking about you know alternative realms and you know beings. And it's just totally outside the normal range of thought and uh, conversation that they were probably used to before they had that experience. Well, I must say, I resonate with that completely. I mean, I've got clients that call me the people seer. <laughs> and, right. you know, I've become more introverted uh, yes. the more I've been, you know, immersed in this. And it's true. You, you know, I went to a, I decided I would go to a networking event the other night. And I just felt completely in the wrong place because I sensed that these people you know, the majority of the people there were so um, <clears throat> so much immersed in that 3D world that, right. you know, I love having conversations like this, for example, but I can't go out and meet somebody out on the street and have this right. kind of conversation. They'll with think them. you're crazy. So, you know? <laughs> uh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, but I can't. You know, I'm not going to deny my inner experience. You know. Oh, absolutely, and you know, so I, you know, I, I really um, discern who it is that I want to interact with because I've never been one for small talk and meaning meaningless conversations, and even right. more so now. You know. Yes. Yep. I'm the same exact way. <laughs> I think that's why I'm so. You know, I write, the reason I wrote that book and the reason I'm continuing to write is not to make a lot of money. Would it be great if I could make a full-time living on my writings? Yes, that would be amazing. But I wrote because I felt I had something important to say. That's why I wrote the book. Not to make money, but to, to one, raise people's levels of consciousness, but to two, 
to pass on to posterity my thoughts and, and what I believe is very important for us to understand as a society collectively about ourselves. Yes, and I think it, it really is. I mean, that's why, you know, I do these shows. It's why Nancy's got this radio network, which is right. really to provide this kind of information to those people who are drawn to it and who are ready for it. Yes. And, you know, I'm totally open to going as far down the rabbit hole as you want to because it fascinates me. And as I said right. to you in our pre-show call, you know, I'm an avid learner and and wanting to soak up all this, you know, these different um, approaches, learning from people and so on. And, you know, this goes, as, as Nancy says so often, this is going into the collective yes. unconscious just through yes. the, the expression of it all. Right, right, exactly, exactly. I think it's that theory of complementarity. Because we're talking about these deep subjects, we're going to get, you know, if we played this backwards, we would probably get reversals that are just as deep, that are going just as deep as we're going forwards because of complementarity, because it's complementing what we're saying forward. So regardless of whatever sensory modality we use in the conversation, if it's a free-flowing conversation and it's about really deep stuff like this, you're going to get reversals that are about really deep things because that's what you're talking about. Mm, yes, and and it occurred to me that that might be a good thing to do. I already have audacity, so uh, maybe I'll have to try doing. Yeah, I'll uh, send me the recording. I'll uh, I have Reverse Speech Pro. I can do a, a an analysis and then send you some of the the reversals. And if you want to, I don't know if you want to have another show at some point in the future. Are you there, Jan? I am, yes. I was going to say, is it me or is... No, no. He just dropped off. Us? Oh. <laughs> oh, well. Well, we're nearly at the end of the show anyway. But, uh, yeah, I thought, as you said to me before, that uh, I was hearing break up and no one else was. I wondered if it was me again. I know. Um, and then I was trying to get your attention and I was muted. <laughs> so... Uh, well, it was a brilliant show for as long as it lasted. Yeah, well, we're nearly there, and it, it was a fascinating conversation, and I'll be very interested, you know, I'll send Josh the recording, um, and I'll be interested to hear what kind of reversals come out of it, because as he said earlier, you know, it's when you're doing it spontaneously that it it kind of um, is more... Um, more authentic and more informative so and we always do things off the cuff here so <laughs> hopefully we could get some interesting reversals from it <laughs> well if you ever heard it i i heard i i don't remember the man who i heard an interview of, uh, that he did and he was actually playing segments from different politicians and people we know and then reversing it mm -hmm. oh my god it was stunning it really was pretty freaky you know, I, like uh, one of the politicians saying, "Oh, I'm here for you," and blah blah blah, and then the reversal was like, "He's just, you know, da da da," you know, and it was like, <laughs> a, 
So I've actually heard, I, I assume that there's probably other places that people can go to to actually hear this kind of thing. You know, where it's, uh, because if you haven't, if you haven't really heard it happen, it's kind of hard to imagine what we're talking about, I would think. Have you, have you actually heard of uh, this reversal thing? No, I haven't. No. Yeah, it's but very... I was I was fascinated by the concept of it, which is why I had Josh on the show, you know, because as I said, I'm always fascinated with learning different things. And I have heard, of course, about these reversals of, of um, you know, music, songs, like... Um, you know, Paul McCartney is dead. Is <laughs> is in one of the Beatles songs? I think I can't remember what it, which one it is. But uh, and you know, there is. I have heard. Hello? Can you hear me? Uh, He's oh, back. Josh, you're back. <laughs> there we go. I tried calling you on the other line. I, I got. You. I lost connection. I went ahead and stepped out of the coffee shop. I'm outside on my cell phone now. Sorry about that. Had I, had I known you were going to call at 4 instead of 8, I would have been at home. But I was at the coffee shop doing work, and it was kind of spur of the moment. So I've just been doing the majority of the interview in the bathroom. <laughs> I went ahead and stepped outside. Oh, well, as I, as I said, you know, we, we go with the flow and uh, right. whatever is. It's you have to. to. Be, but, uh... <laughs> So anyway, we're about at the end of the show. Uh, Nancy and I filled in with a little conversation while you were out of the picture, as it were. Um, And I must say, Josh, I've really enjoyed this. And I would love for you to have the recording and and analyze it. That would be fascinating to hear what comes out of it. So I'll definitely send you the recording. And would you just like to share how people can find you again and and your book? Yes, of course. Um, reverse speech and theory and practice is available pretty much everywhere. Um, so if you just Google reverse speech and theory and practice, it'll come up at a number of different retailers. You can also find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Joshua Schmoody. So J-O-S-H-U-A-S-C-H-M as in Mary, U as in umbrella, D as in David, E as in Earl. So Joshua Schmoody, at Joshua Schmoody. And uh, you can find me there. Lastly, you can go to my publishing company's website, mylhp, is in paul.com, mylhp. Um, there's some, some blogs in there that get into reverse speech, but also I, I help other independent authors publish, distribute, and, and market their, their books. So if you're interested in that, definitely visit the website and uh, drop me a line. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for being a guest. And despite, I'm just glad I managed to get a hold of you if you were expecting me at eight. So it all worked out as it was meant to be. So thank you for that. And uh, Jan Shaw, the successalchemist.net, if you want to find out more about what I do, and um, the webalchemist.net as well. And thank you to Nancy, as always, for producing. And I hope you'll join me for another Cosmic Creating Show. Thank you for having me on.